Welcome, everyone. Boy, do we have the show for you today. Of course, I'm Michael Dismuke with Continuing Conversations. Um, uh, I am a freelance writer for Star Trek Adventures RPG and a blogger on Continuing Missions, which is the number one site for Star Trek Adventures RPG in the universe. Um, But we're really expanding our borders today. Um, I can't wait to tell you who we have on because we're going to really show the reach that Star Trek Adventures um, is going as we go into other realms. We already uh, interviewed over the past couple of weeks, we know we had Thomas Marone with Star Trek Online and talked about the collaboration with Utopia Planitia. Um, and today we're going to talk about another fantastic collaboration. So let me make some introductions to who we have on with us today. We have Jody Hauser. Uh, you may know her as a professional comic book writer. She works on many licensed properties. Some of the, she's Eisner nominated. She's New York Times bestselling author and writer. And she works on fantastic titles like Stranger Things, Doctor Who. Wow. And of course, today we're going to talk about her work on Star Trek IDW. Uh, what, Jody, you want to say hi? Hi, everybody. All right. Fantastic. We also have with us Jackson Lansing. And of course, he was one of the main collaborators um, uh, on forming. Uh, the story for Star Trek Adventure, uh, excuse me, for the Star Trek Year 5 with IDW Publishing. He's a creative professional with a wide range of skill set. By day, he's a creative director in brand marketing with an expertise in film and television. And by night, he too is a New York Times bestselling writer of comics, digital series, film, television, and animation. And of course, we know him from works like Captain America, Sentinel of Liberty, and Batman Beyond Neo Year. Boom. Two mics dropped. Okay, so happy to have you with us here, Jackson. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here. I always love it when my jump bio makes it into one of these things. Like nobody cares about my day job. It's barely my day job anymore. But <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad when it gets brought up. It's very nice. It's really. Hey, it's really good to. It's really good to hang out with y'all. Uh, I huge fan of the game. It was very hard for both Jody and for Jackson for me to truncate any kind of introduction for you. (laughs) If you look up your names on YouTube, I mean, everything's everywhere. Uh, I I think you own SDCC uh, from what I saw from a lot of the videos. We're on all all different channels. Jody Jody literally like... Uh, that literally owns SDCC, but she has like a, a long history with San Diego Comic Con. I mean, There's a music year, video out there. This year was your, yeah, I did do a music video one year. Uh, but I mean, this year was Jackson and his co writer Colin Kelly's year for sure. So we had a, yeah, we had a big one this year. It was very fun. Saw those for sure. Of course, we also have with us the wonderful Fred Love. Anybody who follows this podcast know we have worshipped his modules many times. He's a Star Trek Adventures freelance writer. I love his games, um, play them quite a bit as we're in season five of our own uh, online Discord Star Trek Adventures game. Say hi, Fred. Hey, everybody. It's so good to be here with this illustrious panel. And thanks for having me, Michael. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, I had nerves for you just figuring out how to take this amazing story of Star Trek Year 5 and try to truncate it into a gaming module, a supplement for us to use. I had nerves for you. So we're going to be breaking this all down today about the evolution of that process. And who better than to talk about how that process even started? But Jim Johnson, go ahead and introduce yourself and, and lead us off on this, Jim. 
Sure thing. Uh, hey, everybody. I'm Jim Johnson. I'm the project manager and line editor for the Star Trek Adventures role-playing game published by Modifius Entertainment. And uh, I am super, super excited to be here tonight. I mean, who, who knew like a year ago, Michael, almost a year ago now, that, that, that we'd be able to, to, to get some, I mean, just unbelievably fantastic guests. I'm so excited. I know it took a while to get this scheduling worked out. And uh, but boy, this is, this is so cool. I mean, I, I'm just going to fanboy all over for a second here and just say that like uh, year five was amazing. Like I finally got the last uh, graphic novel collection, that, you know, a couple of months ago and, and, and read it and I had to read it over again. And, uh, oh, and my, son, my son, who's about to turn seven um, tomorrow, um, he's, he's seen it and he's flipped through it. He can't read yet, but it's, he flip, he's flipping through it. And uh, I think he's going to ask me to read it to him at some point. I'm just, I'm ready to jump into it with him because uh, he just loved the, um, all the different art and the, the characters and the, um, I, I think it's the Ecosa. Is that the right pronunciation for Yes. Because, yes. Awesome. Got it, on, got it on the first try. Yeah, got it, got, got it on the first try, the Icosa. Well done. I'll, uh, may, since that's actually kind of a gaming pun, uh, I'll maybe spill out why we called them the Icosa later. Okay. I can't oh, we love that. Easter eggs, so that's, that's great. Oh, yeah. I'm here for it. Awesome. Cool. Uh, anyway, I, so, but first off, just that, just as, again, as a footnote, that's a lovely thing about comic books, what you just pointed out right there. Like, that's not a story that you can really say about novels generally, unless the cover is like super evocative. The the barrier to entry for children into comics is so low because so much of the, the deal is a visual medium. We always have that like rule of like, or that test of, could you tell the whole story without reading any of the dialogue? Then it's a good comic. Um, and like, I, I genuinely think like a lot of the, the accessibility of it um, is why we do comics. Like it's, it's a, you can reach and, a huge audience who all find different stuff out of the story. So that actually really means a lot to me, Jim. That's awesome. And, and with licensed comics like this, it's a, it's a way to tell a story that, you know, you might not have the budget to tell in another format. You might not have the actors available uh, to tell, but you know, it's a way for people who maybe don't follow comics to sort of jump in and see like a contained story with characters I know. And it's a great way into the medium, which is why I've always loved working on licensed books. I've had so many people say, I bought my first comic and you wrote it. And yeah. it's kind of like no better feeling. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't know how the rest of you feel, but I kind of feel like comic books and role-playing games are, are kind of, connected and similar in a way because like in a role-playing game, you don't have a budget. You don't have to worry about a budget. You can imagine literally anything you want at the, at right. the game table, whether it's virtual or real. Like if you want to have an amazing alien with, you know, all kinds of different things going on, you know, eyes, heads, ears, you don't have to worry about a prosthetics um, a budget. You don't have to worry about a CGI budget or whatever. It's just whatever you can imagine, you can happen. And then for comic books, it's the same idea, right? Cause like literally anything you can imagine, as long as you can draw it, Right, as long as you can get it on paper, then you're you're good. There's no, as, there's no, as, no as long as as long as a professional artist can draw it, and I think that's I, that's that's where the the double back of that is. Is like when I was 18, I had the exact same idea. I read a comic book, and I was like, "There's no budget. You can do anything." And then you and then you realize that sometimes that leads your poor artists into some very just like just like your poor GMs into right. some very interesting scenarios where they have to. Imagine a thing that was never meant to be imagined. Don't, don't yeah. and on a deadline. Draw armies as you know too too often if possible because that's it's a lot of work. <laughs> we I just wrote I just wrote a horse into Star Trek number three for the new series and Colin literally looked at me and went artists like to draw horses right and he was he had this like smile on the back of his face like, <laughs> it's like the one thing they tell you just don't don't make anybody draw horses. Uh, the only horse, that is horse riding a bicycle. Yeah. 
Ooh, I should make the horse ride a bicycle. No, don't do that. Your horse <laughs> will like your front door and possibly stab you with their like pen or stylus. With paisley fur too, paisley all over. That'll help. <laughs> <laughs> so for those, we, one thing we like to do with continuing conversations is pretend that this is the first time someone watched watches or uh, listens to the podcast. So what I want to do is just give a quick blurb on what year five was. So I'm going to go over to the actual module um, that was written by Fred Love. I'm going to uh, just give you a quick blurb to catch everyone up so that we can then dive into uh, where the story concept came from, um, Jody and Jackson's contributions to that, and the evolution and transformation that Fred helped with. So here's year five for everyone. But fans have wondered ever since what thrilling adventures occurred during the final years of the five-year mission. We all know the five-year mission, right? What events propelled the main characters from where we left them at the end of the series to their new status quo at the start of Star Trek? the motion picture. Kirk gives up the captain's chair for the Admiralty. Scott, uh, Spock leaves Starfleet to purge all remaining emotions through Kolinar. The Enterprise undergoes a major refit. The series' abrupt end left the details of those major developments to the imaginations of the fans. And that is until 2019 when IDW launched Star Trek Year 5, a sprawling space epic that wrapped up the Enterprise's five-year odyssey and set the crew on a path toward their new status quo as depicted on the big screen. Fred, well-written. I have chills. <laughs> uh, Worked on the comic. <laughs> yeah, you, wow, that was dope. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's high praise. I I knew uh, in, in the introduction, there, there was so much, so many references to the Odyssey and giving the, the series this mythological feel that that needed to be worked into the introduction as well. So uh, if, if that worked out well, that was just because the source material was so compelling. Yeah. Well, it, 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 to me, just that concept could draw anybody in because I think we've all asked that question if you watch, if you watch Star Trek, is what happened in all those in-between years. I've read a lot of the novels and I have to personally say this comic has done a more phenomenal job in hooking me in that, in that center, in those, in those key years. So, so um, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I, yeah, it's very, it's, it's very hard for me to even talk about your five without getting a little emotional. It, it's, it's an, oh. it's an absolute, it's an absolute dream project. Um, I don't want to take up all of your time just by telling you all about how much Star Trek means to me, but Star Trek means everything to me. Uh, I have a really deep, um, like my history with Star Trek goes back to my history with, with any fiction. It is like, it is my prime fiction in a lot of ways in the way that like the Odyssey and, and uh, its contemporaries were the first fiction for civilization. Like I, I really do look at it as my, my bedrock for a lot of storytelling. Um, so when Colin, I got and Colin feels similarly. And so, so when we got brought into to work on your five in the first place, um, alongside Jody and Brandon Easton and Jim McCann, um, and eventually Paul Cornell, uh, as writers to come in here, um, you know, we were all given that challenge straight away. And I, I, I think it's, it's always really important to give credit for your five, to Chase Marotes, who um, with Denton Tipton came together and said, how can we do a Star Trek comic at a time when it's very, very hard to do licensed Star Trek comics that aren't direct adaptations of either Star Trek Discovery or Picard? How are you going to do, because it was pre-Picard, but like, or, no, no, this was during Picard, this was like contemporary too. Um, how are we going to do this in a way that's exciting and actually carves new ground? Um because they'd been stuck doing anthologies for a long time. Waypoint was sort of the only thing that they could get through that wasn't a direct adapt. 
And uh, we'd been banging down the door on Star Trek for a long time, which is why we got brought in. But, um, you know, it, it, we, we don't have the kind of licensing resume that Jody has, which is why we needed <laughs> Jody. It's like, we need somebody who actually knows what they're doing. Um, but it was a really like you talking about that book in the past tense is wild to me because I can't believe it's done. I can't believe we did it. Like I genuinely, it's like, it still feels like a dream to me. Sorry. I'm, I'm still my... worried. We're not going to be able to finish it, even though it's, it's finished. You know, know right? <laughs> those things like, you know, knowing at the beginning, how many issues the story was going to take and like the beginning, middle end of it. It's always just like, what's going to go wrong. What's going to stop us from like doing the thing, but nothing stopped us. We did the thing. We did. Yeah. Well, in fact, people... to it. Yeah. It, it means a lot to us. And just so you know, Jackson, Jim knows one of the things I like doing the most is making grown men cry. So if you actually do well up. You're among, you're absolutely among family. Cause I do it all the time. I mean, we're, when we talk about the, the different books that we're working on and whatnot, I mean, it's just Star Trek is in my, in my soul from, from very beginning when I was first, first reading. In fact, like we were talking about my son starting to read and uh, looking at the comic book first. Like the, the first book I can remember reading was one of the old Star Trek photo novels. And it was either, oh, you know, it was man. either the Galileo seven or trouble with triples. I don't remember which one. Um, but I remember flipping, like I, I, I was still working on the words, but I saw the pictures and I could see Kirk and Spock and McCoy and everybody doing their thing. And I was like, Oh, this is so amazing. And uh, I mean, that was almost a comic book, right? The photo novels are, uh, what, oh, uh, they're, they, they are effectively the comic books. Yes. The, the Femetis. And, uh, um, so I, I grew up with Star Trek and it's, it's completely embedded into everything that I do and, and think about. Right. So, uh, yeah. I, you are absolutely new friends. So don't, don't feel shy at all about, about, <laughs> um, venting, venting your, uh, your heart about how much you love Star Trek and how much it means to you. That's what we're here for. Um, all yeah. day. And long. We're, uh, yeah, we're going to start the tour now because we're going to talk about the passion because it's wrapped up completely in the story. And yeah. so let's, let's start with that, um, conceptual idea. Um, Jackson, you and, you know, you're the one who worked initially on that mm -hmm. conceptual idea. I know you have another team member working with you also. Talk to us about that. Just get it, launch us from there. Yeah. So, I mean, first off, uh, Colin isn't just like another team member, just to be super clear. He's my partner uh, in, in all things business. He is, uh, I have my wife and I've got my Colin. Um, Colin is, uh, he's been my best friend since we were 18 years old. Uh, we are like attached at the brain. We call ourselves the hive mind. We rarely do interviews that aren't together. So he actually texted me earlier because uh, we were supposed to be in a D&D &D game right now. And he uh, he texted me and I was like, oh, I have to be on this podcast. And he was like, did I forget about a podcast? So I was like, no, 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 this isn't. This is a me thing. This is a me thing, dude. Don't worry about it. Now. I don't care. <laughs> uh, trust me, he's going to be all amped up to D&D. &D. You, you, okay. It would be, be chaos. Uh, he's our, he's our, he's our, um, uh, tabaxi bard. Yeah, crazy yeah. bard. Yeah, you don't you don't want to see him. Um, but uh, but so but Colin and I, yeah, we we work together. We you know we run everything um, together, which doesn't happen a lot with writers uh, in comics. You just tend to have like solo writers and like and like temporary team ups. And we are a straight up full on. We've been a team up for fifteen years. Now, um, when we got brought in on year five, it was because we'd been banging down the door for three years. Um, to try to do Star Trek. Uh, David Hedgecock at IDW um, was the co-publisher at the time and had, had actually launched my very first book when I was just starting an independent comics book called Freak Show. And uh, back before I was even working with Colin, only thing I've ever published that wasn't with him, right? Um, and David came to us. We were working on, I can say it now, we were working on the Transformers license at the time. And truthfully, Transformers is not uh, a license I have any attachment to whatsoever. 
I have never watched a Transformers thing and enjoyed it. It's nothing against Transformers. It's just not my thing. And so, and that was why they brought us in. They brought us in because they were like, we want to do something totally different with Transformers. Just go totally nuts. Go really weird with it. And Colin and I were like, great. And we did about a year and a half of development with that. And it kind of felt like banging our heads up against a wall because we were fighting the license. And that made sense because we aren't really... Uh, I can't, uh, we weren't really trained in license work. We didn't spend a lot of time in license work. So we were just kind of like shooting for the stars and seeing what, what happened. The only license we'd really worked on up to that point was Tomb Raider outside of like DC, um, which was not a great experience. So like, you know, we were really gun shy about license and Hedgecock came to me and he said at uh, WonderCon, uh, I think 2017, maybe 2016 came to me and said, Hey, um, How's Transformers going? I was like, I don't know, man, maybe. I, I love the editor, I, you know. And he goes, um, well, you know, is there anything else like that we do that you might want to play around with instead? And I said, and I just looked at him, I was like, you know, truthfully, I know Mike Johnson is on this and you don't do anything other than Mike's books, but Star Trek. Like, and I love Mike. He's a really good friend of mine. So I don't want to like take, I'm not going to take work from Mike, but if you have room to play next to Mike, Colin and I would kill it. We'd be, we'd be your guys like, absolutely, please let us do this. And um, we came in and we pitched this three book line in 2016 or 2017. That was a crazy thing with all these different tie-ins and all this book and, you know, years and um, set like after DS9 and Voyager and next gen and like, uh, was really gonna like sequelize all the stuff. And then they, uh, right before it got approved, like almost a year in uh, Star Trek approved, you know, greenlit Star Trek Picard. <laughs> and they were like, we're definitely not allowed to play with any of those toys now because Picard gets to run the continuity for all of that. So the whole line is dead. Goodbye. Uh, and we thought like that was it for us in Star Trek. And uh, they came back to us with Waypoint and they said, hey, you know, do you want to, would you do one? Chase Marotz, who was the guy behind a lot of that, the, the, the sort of genius editor, um, came to us and said, hey, do you want to do just a short, any, any Star Trek short? And we were like, we pitched him a, a story from the perspective of Data's cat spot. Uh, and we ended up doing it, uh, and it ended up, sorry, my wife is in traffic and it's hard for her and she's texting me a lot. Apologies. Um, but we got that short out that showed that we could do Star Trek, which was exciting. We weren't going to try to transformers it. And then, um, they called us up, uh, maybe six months later and said, Hey, uh, we have this idea. What if you and Star Trek. What does that look like? When you just take Star Trek, the original series, what does this last season of that look like? How do we attach it to the motion picture and give the original series the ending that it deserved? Um, we're going to put together a writer's room. We're going to do it like a TV show, which I just thought was genius. I was like, that's what a cool idea um, because it doesn't isolate your writers off on its own space. An interesting idea, especially because uh, Star Trek, the original series did not have a writer's room. Uh, it was a freelance show. So it, it had no, there, there was no writer's room um, for the series ever. So we were the first. And kill us. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and they said, you know, Hey, you're going to, uh, you know, you're going to pitch to write in the room, but also uh, if you want, you can pitch to quote show run, which means you're just going to, within the comics pre premise here just means you're going to set the overall arc. You're going to build what the beginning is and what the end is and sort of where the midpoint is so that the thing has a spine that then we can attach great writer driven one shot 
issues off of. Um, so basically like able to make the space for the individual writers, but also tell an ongoing story across. And we said, hell yes, let's go. Um, and hope that we would get in the room. But as we were building it out, we found ourselves in revisiting TOS and then thinking about what we loved and what we thought we, we suddenly we, we spun out a whole season of TV and Colin and I have, have done a lot of television and, and development, especially in, and in animation. And we knew some of these forms. And so we, once we found Gary Seven and we found the Folians and we found the Originalists and we found the, um, you know, we, we we found what would be eventually become the Icosa. That that comes out of a pitch and comes out of a gym. And there's a lot uh, that was developed well after us on that. Um, we sort of put all these things together and said, well, I think we've actually got something here. Put that together into a really robust pitch that I just pulled up to see how close it was to what Fred uh, wrote because it's honestly very similar. It starts okay. with that same thing about being like, we know where they're going to start. You know, we know where they're going to end, but we have no idea how they got there. And I was, I was like, yeah, same. <laughs> um, so we, uh, yeah, this is back when, uh, uh, back before Gary seven, when I was pitching Garth of Izar as the villain, which we ended up, uh, blowing up because we, uh, got, uh, the Gary seven idea and thought it was much more interesting. Uh, but yeah, we, uh, we got the, gig but the funny part is and this is where the jody of it all comes in yeah can i yeah. tell this story okay. yes please so so basically just my story ends with i've turned in the outline okay so uh a little background for me like i love star trek not as nearly as much as jackson and colin do but like star trek connects me to actually both of my grandparents because my dad's mom is like hardcore science fiction and especially Star Trek fans. So I used to like grow up going to her house and watching Next Gen and DS9 with her. My other grandmother, who's my mom's mom, uh, grew up as a kid in Boston and knew Leonard Nimoy as a kid. He was friends with her older brother. She says they dated. That's a debate among the family. I choose to believe <laughs> she did because I like that story better. So Heck like yeah. I had actually pitched uh, to Waypoint early on and had a story approved, but it hadn't uh, the series was wrapping up before I had the chance to do it. Uh, so Denton Tipton, who Jackson mentioned earlier, who was an editor uh, I'd worked on for Orphan Black and X-Files Origins, he reached out to me about being in this writer's room. And I knew Jackson and Colin were like the potential showrunners, uh, quote unquote, for this. And A, I would feel really bad getting to work on their dream project if they weren't there. And B, I knew my schedule was going to be insane that year. So I said I would like to do the room, but I sort of made it contingent on Jackson and Colin being the people running the room because they they were the ones I wanted to do it with like obviously amazing project but I wanted to do it with two of my best friends in comics so uh Denton, Denton eventually reached out to me and was like well good news you're you're in the room you know Jackson and Colin got it and I was like great so I texted Jackson and I'm like hey I guess we're doing this thing and Jackson's like what meanwhile uh I am waiting wait like I know the call is coming that day and I am waiting for the call. And I don't know that we've gotten the gig. I think maybe we've gotten in the room. I certainly don't know that we're the showrunners. And especially at that time, this was the biggest gig Colin and I had ever gotten in comics. Um, we, we had, this, we'd never been on, on an ongoing series before. We'd been really kicked around at DC, uh, a lot, um, on, on some, like a lot of cancellations and small books. Tomb Raider wasn't a great experience for us. So we were very nervous about coming onto this and like doing a good job. Um, and cause it was something that mattered to us. And we get this text through. Like, congratulations. 
emotions. Nervous energy is <laughs> like, some of the best but, energy, though. And, really yeah, so, but that, that was really cool because I got to tell two people I adore that they got their dream job. And like, yeah. It was it was awesome. Uh, I danced around my office and we called each other and freaked out and then um, and then tried to pretend like we hadn't been told when they called us. Um, and that's how it all started. And basically, um, the, the, the process to make the answer really, really short. The process was really cool because it was literally just one day a year for two years. The whole room got together and Colin and I already knew what was going to happen. We were able to map it out on a board very quickly and be like, hey, here's what the show is going to be. Here's how we're going to start it. Here's how we're going to end it. Here's the issues that we're going to take. That's half the book. Half the book is written by Colin and I. The other half of the book is spread along the room. And th- and then what we would do is we would take two issues, put them together and have that be an episode. And so what ended up being the greatest thing about the room was when we got to shut up, like Colin and I would just walk in and be like, okay, here's the briefing. Here's what we're doing. Here's what we've approved with Star Trek. Here's what everybody's excited about. Now, what do you guys want to do? And we got to hear Jody's great pitches and Brandon's great pitches and Jim's great pitches and just talk. And by and large, you know, the first pitch out the gate was the one we went with. Cause like normally the writers were pretty sure of what they wanted to do and were excited to do it. So we got to spend most of those days, those single days, just hanging around the star Trek archive, talking about star Trek with a bunch of writers we respected. It was the absolute dream job, <laughs> like truly a, a dream job nerding out yeah 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 and then they gave us and then they they let us go into the merch room where they have everything they've ever produced for star trek that was a crazy time so so from there let's keep it a thousand feet level for a second and take it over to jim Jim, then how did modifius get involved with this idea of doing a collaboration based on this graphic novel and you want to go there already i I wanted i wanted to hear more about the 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 sausage making of the actual comic book (laughs) (laughs) i I, I do the thing is we have you know we have about 45 minutes and where i'm 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 so sorry we're so talking (laughs) i apologize all right i I would eat i would eat this up all day long because as a writer right i want to know what was the what was the sausage what was the outline like did you have a a broad strokes outline for the entire thing and then writers pitch stuff to kind of fill in the blanks and stuff but uh, that was exactly right yeah we knew we yeah. we we knew specifically we're going to do the premiere or like we're going to call and I do issue one and two. Then we're going to come back for issue seven, eight. Then we're going to come back for issue 11, 12. Then we're going to come back for 13, 14. But then we're going to leave for a bunch of issues and come back for and like the, we, we left these spaces open and they knew where the the points in the story were going to be. So they knew how to tell these stories within those frameworks. But then from that point, Jody gets to come in and like Jody's pitch was Jody talked about that waypoint pitch. Yeah, it's and I knew I had a story that had been approved for Trek and, you know, I hadn't gotten to write yet. And it ended up tying in perfectly for where my uh, story was going to go in the first year, because it was all about communication and hearing people's thoughts instead of what they're saying. But it's at the same time when they have a young Tholian on board who they're trying to learn how they speak and how to communicate with them. So it all just sort of worked out perfectly. And, you know, also I got to write Uhura's like this saving the day, which is. I mean, and, and that was that was one of the, that was the other secret of the framework was Colin and I came in and we said, well, we know that or whenever we come in, Kirk is the main character. Mm-hmm. Like that was, that was in our outline from straight up because people remember TOS as an ensemble show, but it was not. 
when it was uh, like, if you go back to that show, that show is the William Shatner show and it becomes the Leonard Nimoy show over time, but it was the William Shatner show. And so when, so when you come in and you're going to write Captain Kirk and we were trying to try to do what TOS did, we had to not step out of the idea of like the TOS of memory and try to do the literal TOS, which means centering Kirk. And so what that let us do was kind of have our cake and eat it too do something that TOS didn't used to be able to do, which were episodes that were really from other perspectives. So we could say every time we come in, it's going to be a Kirk show. And sometimes we'll use Spock and sometimes we'll use other characters, but like by and large, it's going to be a Kirk show, Uh, which means that every writer got to find their favorite characters and be like, I want to do Uhura or I want to do Scotty or I want to do Sulu or Chekhov. And I want to do, and we ended up, over the course of the series, getting to do, like if you look, every every time a new writer comes in, it's an episode that's centered on a new member of the cast who hasn't gotten a spotlight. Every member of the cast is a spotlight issue over the course of it because of the way it was structured. Um, but that that came from planning. That wasn't like, oh, it was a happy accident. Like we we built all that from the from the front so that we knew we could get there. To me, it okay. was seamless. Cool. There wasn't like hard jerks when that happened, though, which was really no. nice. It was still this yeah. overall story, which which was really seamless to me. It's surrounded by great writers, man. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, more modern audiences are used to that sort of shifts in TV shows. And again, like Jackson was saying, that's sort of like the memory people have, but that's coming more from the movies than the yes. original show. So we sort of got to, you know, with the core story focusing on Kirk, with the, you know, other stories that we all were writing sort of lean into more of the impression that people had. Interesting. That's great. And just for my, ref- my reference, uh, as we, as we move toward getting uh, Modifius involved here um, from, from that, that text where you said, okay, you got the gig to, to the final, final delivery of the last manuscript or, or, you know, what, what, you know, from beginning to end, what was that? What was that time commitment? Was that two years, five years? How much time did you? I, so I turned in, I turned in the Star Trek year five show running outline in, uh, on November 4th, 2018. And we completed Star Trek year five, number 25 in, I believe July of 2021. Yeah, we we did have a delay for a bit uh, when the pandemic first started because a lot of comic publishers stopped publishing for a while because the distributor wasn't operating, comic shops were all closed. So it probably would have been closer to an even like two years just for the production standpoint. And then like the the few months, because our first writer's room was end of January. In 2019. I think. So it was like a few months after, you know, you turned in that pitch. So... Yeah, we we had the plan was two years because of the pandemic. It went for three. Sure, sure. No, that makes sense. Yeah, so that's quite an investment of time, right? For for uh, for something that you're so passionate about, so much energy that you have to spend over a long, sustained period of time. Uh, uh, really? Something I'm sure you all must know about <laughs> in role playing games. I mean, isn't that the that that's the whole ball game? Yeah, day in and day out, absolutely. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah. So now, uh, you know, Michael, getting to your question here. Uh, so when Modifius got involved. It was uh, early 2020, so you guys were uh, well into the series, but you weren't done yet. I think you were like on issue 21 or 22, somewhere in that in that frame. And uh, I, I want to say, I want to say it was um, like the genesis of it was was Chris Birch, the president of Modifius, coming to me one day and said, "Hey, you're the project manager now, so let's do some cool stuff." And uh, he said, "What what do you think about getting to do some sort of tie-in with IDW?" And I was like, well, we haven't done anything with the comic books yet. That'd be kind of cool. 
And I was like, do I know anybody at IDW who might have any kind of connection? And um, it worked out that I, I had a connection with uh, Rich Handley, who was doing all the editing on the um, uh, Eagle Moss Hero Collector comic books. And, uh, and I just, I threw a, I threw a, a, a email at him and I said, do you know anybody at IDW who we might be able to connect with to do something cool Star Trek, you know, comic wise, the RPG wise. I, I think this is how it worked. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, because it's been a couple of years and the pandemic and I have a short term memory because I, I need to have a short term memory for the, all the project management I do. I, I need to have that. <laughs> I have to compartmentalize my brain. Otherwise I'll never forget <laughs> anything. I don't know if I get any work done. Um, but so I think, I think Rich was the initial connect. To, to possibly you, Jackson, and and Colin, and and maybe yeah. even Jody as well, and we, and we just started kicking it around on uh, on email a little bit. And initially, Rich was going to do a, the bulk of the writing, and then I brought I asked Fred if he was interested. And you know, fortunately, Fred, you said you were, which I was really grateful for because uh, you were one of my regular go tos uh, for for Star Trek stuff, especially when weird stuff came up. Like I got these really weird things coming up. Can can you do this? And it's like, oh yeah, absolutely. And you always deliver, and it's always great. Um, but, um, and then Rich unfortunately had to drop out cause he had, he had some other commitments that he had to tend to. And so like the bulk of the work, Fred dropped on you, which I knew you were more than up for. And, uh, I was able to delete it a little bit, but uh, I mostly handed it off to you and the, and the IDW team. Cause I, I knew I was, I, I knew, you know, I trust my team, right? That's the whole Star Trek thing is you trust your team. You put a team together and then you trust them to get it done. And of course they do, uh, which is great. But, um, so I think initially it was Chris telling me, go, go talk to somebody at IDW. I talked to Rich. Rich got us in touch with you folks. And then we got the ball rolling from that point. And, um, you know, gosh, I have to think, and Fred, I'm going to turn this over to you to get your perspectives here, but I don't really remember any hiccups at all. I mean, you, you all were so generous with your time and your content and your art. And, and just like you were so professional and so easy to work with that. I was like, this is, this is like one of the easiest, I mean, I had like, I don't know, 14 or 15 projects on my plate at the time. And this was like, oh, I'm really passionate about this because I love the comic book um, as it was coming out. I, I just couldn't wait for the next edition, uh, next issue to come out. Uh, but Fred, uh, you know, fill in some perspective here. Like, uh, talk about uh, you know getting the assignment and then um, you know getting involved in it and then and, you know getting down into the weeds as we were getting the um, as we were getting draft manuscripts from you folks um, for the last few issues. Like, I, you mean you gave us a great data dump of all the stuff. Which was a which was a godsend, and then um, you were able to kind of filter out the last few issues, even though they hadn't gone to uh, to, to full blown. Um, you know, I don't know what the term is, but you know, getting the the full art and the. I think we may have even sent us some pre color um, draft um, layouts too. But uh, Fred, go ahead. Yeah, give me give me some uh, give me some thoughts here. Yeah, so uh, Jody and Jack, you both mentioned that at different points that this was sort of a dream assignment for you. That was almost like the response that I had when Jim asked me to come on board. He's like, hey, uh, we've got some comic books. Do you want to, some Star Trek comics? Do you want to turn that into a Star Trek RPG product? And it was just an emphatic yes from the beginning <laughs> because I've been a huge fan of uh, Star Trek time fiction from the time that I was, I, was, I was a little kid. I've got a shelf full of comics and video games and novels. And so, um, when I think about the the year for year tie-in specifically, uh, two things jump out. First was my first question was, are we going to get to use that beautiful art? And I was so gratified that the answer was yes. I, I think the art, uh, you know, comic books is a visual medium, and the art was so wonderful in that it looked like the old sets and the original uh, cast but also had this grand scale and these really imaginative um, ships and creatures and settings uh, and, and sort of an updated um, um, 
updated for for a modern audience. And and so I thought that would give you being able to use that art would give the year five tie in an identity of its own. And then um, another thing that I love about Star Trek Adventures is we take quotes from the TV show and the movies and we begin each subheading with with a quote from those characters. And I really wanted to go through and pull out a quote from Cock and use that dialogue in that same way that we use the dialogue from the from the TV shows and the movies. And I thought that those I, I hope anyway that those elements combined gave the tie-in its own identity in the Star Trek Ventures uh, line. Yeah, I think oh go ahead, Jackson. Oh I just I was just gonna geek out about the art for a second just because uh, I have it behind me. Um, Stephen Thompson uh, was the artist who uh, sort of started year five and who did the sort of like core issues um, by and large. But, uh, you know, we had a whole great team of artists from across the spectrum of like classic Star Trek people like uh, like J.K. Woodward um, all the way to, uh, you know, brand new uh, artists coming in um, on Star Trek. So it, it was a that was a really lovely process. Um in general for us because steven set such a high bar and then everybody who came in i was thinking of uh, what sylvia califano um yeah. who's just who was just outstanding but also had a more cartoony style but it allowed it to like shape in same thing with christopher jones like there's a breadth of art in year five it's not all the same art style and you couldn't be steven if you tried like that steven's work is singular it's, it's specific it comes from the sort of irish comic style he's a he's an, a, a really wonderful artist um but truly he set a bar that everybody sat, you know, just lifted like the, the, it was, it was really a proving ground for a lot of artists who were like, Star Trek can be more um, than, than, you know, quote unquote people in rooms, which is what I think a lot of Star Trek art, like a lot of artists think Star Trek is, which is why they don't work on it as much. Um, yeah, when, but it really got, can be more than that. I'm sorry. But, but just the fact we got to see all these artists do their best Star Trek rather than trying to, come up with some sort of house style for the book i think that's really what made it work so even though the different artists look different it all just meshes together so beautifully just because it's yeah. like the best star trek that they're going to well they, you know i don't want to limit their futures or anything but yeah who knows we might get well, some of them back <laughs> like like I, the story though again there was no sharp jerks or sharp left turns with it as you said i mean comic yeah. you know i've collected comics since i was eight years old so so you get used to art transition and you learn how to ride the story so yeah, I, yeah. Uh, it, it worked out really well one of the biggest things that of course star trek is known for is social commentary and so i did have a question that i wanted to ask while we have the writers here what was the overall social commentary message you were trying to accomplish with this? And I know there's probably other ones weaved in with different writers coming in, but can we talk about that a little bit? Oh, a thousand percent. Yeah. Um, so that's why Gary seven, uh, when we came to Gary seven, uh, it, it was because we realized that there was a great chance to do something, um, specific to, uh, not like, okay, let me back this up. 1960s Star Trek is telling social stories within a 1960s context. So its stories are told about 1960s social issues because that's what's going on. Modern Star Trek is in a modern storytelling mode trying to tell modern stories in that respect. And before Strange New Worlds was doing that on a non-episodic basis. And so, which was, you know, in the context in which we were working on the show. We had a really unique uh, challenge, which was to take the old Star Trek storytelling model, episodic 60s episodic television model and apply 
modern social commentary inside of that and tell those kind of stories forward. And with every single issue, we asked what that was, right? We always tried to look and say like, okay, yeah, but what is the story about? Colin and I are always character guys, but on Star Trek, especially this Star Trek, we were also meaning guys. So we were looking into it and saying, okay, if, um, for instance, uh, Jody's issue, uh, her, her first episode uh, is all about a device that makes people tell the truth and how much or, or or hear the truth more accurately. And the more that that happens, the more that people are are stripped of their ability to like let the little white lies that make their world go on, you know, go on. Uh, the more violent and unstable and sort of scared they are. And so the story tells something very very truthful about the the nature of lying and the nature of the way that we are kind to one another and that sometimes those lines aren't as as blurred as you think it's also a story about communicating with the other it has all these i mean you know you can dig into jody's story and find like several layers of of like social meaning even before you get to the core character meaning which is about bright eyes our new tholian character and uhura finding a friendship that will save the galaxy right so like all of that stuff is you know built into episode episode the overall of Star Trek year five then had to be about something modern that we had to say about Star Trek. To me, it was like, it wasn't enough to be like, I want to tell, I want to say democracy is damaged. Cause like, obviously democracy is damaged. Let's talk about it. And that's where the originalists come from. That's where the idea of this, of the Starfleet elect or the, the Federation election and running that through, um, which because of the delays in the book became much more uh, direct, a commentary on the rise of Trump yeah. than we even expected it to be. That was really not, my hairy mud issues, I think, came out in October and November of 2020. So that w- that was not planned. Yeah, we really truthfully did not. That, that was not how we were trying to, 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 to do things. But we did want to talk about democracy. We did want to talk about Trump, but we wanted to do it you know, behind some lenses. And then really, uh, but really like the ultimate core, and I, and I can't say too much about this without spoiling the book for anybody who's listening and hasn't read the books, but ultimately the true enemy of Star Trek Year 5 is what I think the true enemy of Star Trek is in large respect, and that is nostalgia. I think the, the, the book is about the ways in which we limit the myths that we have created because of the nostalgia we have for why they were created in the first place or how they were created in the first Ooh, place. Um, and and I, and I, I, I feel this way very strongly because I were, I mean, Colin I, uh, and Jody too, we all work in what I think is effectively modern myth making. It, it, it's a, it is a, it is a handed down story with repetitive characters who are going to appear in different guises. I mean, these are like Graham Morrison is quite right on the super gods element. And I think in Star Trek, um, we have another set of super gods who teach us a different set of values and who align to a different set of, uh, of sort of like post-religious principles. I think they're really important. I don't think Star Trek's just cool. I think Star Trek's deeply important. So when we were talking about like, how do we pay respect to that and do something that feels like it, 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 tell it it makes the story to some degree about the necessity for star trek year five to exist in the first place then the story really should be about how we can't let what we have sit in stasis we can't put everything we love in a little bottle and keep it there forever because that's not how democracy is supposed to work that's not how family is supposed to work that's not how society is supposed to work and it's not how star trek is supposed to work so nostalgia 
is the is yeah. the villain of Star Trek Year Five and is thus our and on, a, on a less meta level. It's very much about how individuals can find themselves with the option to stagnate or the option to become something more. And I think even if you're not like being like, oh, this is about Star Trek and how Star Trek <laughs> like keep being Star Trek, but not, yeah, you can still look at the characters and being it's like they they're at the point they're at a big turning point and the choices they make will determine whether they continue to grow or they just keep being what they are and does that even fit in the universe they're coming back to i I mean i gotta pass this over to jim because jim talk we talk a lot um with star trek adventures about this subject and even trying to get a more diverse range of people even playing the game so jim what are you uh hearing there that that matches what you're noticing in game development even now when, when you're developing the modules uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it's interesting that you're talking about the whole nostalgia thing. I, wh- where I was going was, um, you know, I wonder if that's the reaction to a lot of fans to the, to, to the newer Star Trek shows, right? They want, they want the nostalgia and they want Star Trek to be in their nice little box that they're, that they're familiar with from back in the day. They, they, they resist the new discovery and the new Picard and the new, uh, you know, lower decks prodigy, et cetera. And they're like, oh, this is Star Trek, but it's not the Star Trek I know. I want the Star Trek I know. And they want, they want that little box, but it's like, no, Star Trek is bigger than that. It, it blows up the box and it, it's, it's, it's expansive. It's idic. It's, it's everything. It's, it's much bigger than what we've seen. It's you, we can build on it and expand on it and make it different. And I mean, that's what we do with the RPG is I constantly try to find more diverse voices to bring into the game, to write for the game and to, uh, to play the game too. I mean, we're constantly trying to, to build the fan base and, and create new people, get involved in the game and, and, and show them what a great storytelling venue it is and, and how much you can learn. I think uh, the pandemic has helped us, in a lot of ways, weirdly, because so many people moved to online playing because they did, they couldn't play in person. And so they're meeting people online all around the world. And uh, it's, it's amazing. It's super, super humbling and gratifying, but mostly humbling to be able to go onto like YouTube or Twitch or something and see people in like Germany and Africa and Australia playing the game. I can't understand the language that they're playing in, but I can see the dice on the table. I can see the, the modules and the books on the table. And they're clearly playing it and clearly doing Star Trek and having a great time. And it's like, wow, this is, I mean, it's not just the game. It's Star Trek is binding so many different people all around the world together. And uh, it's just, it's just an amazing experience. And I'm sure the comic books are like, I don't know if you have translations. I'm assuming you do. But, we do. Uh, we do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's so easy because like, I, like you were saying at the very beginning, um, the, the books themselves, if you just take all the words out, it's still telling that story panel after panel, you don't need yeah. you know, German or Russian or, or French or Japanese, the language in there, I mean, it certainly helps, but uh, right. uh, you can still get the story and t- for that to be so universal across the entire world, it's just super, super awesome. And I just, I, I just love the fact that that's what we have now with, uh, with Star Trek, but uh, boy, that's a really great deep commentary about uh, how nostalgia can be dangerous. Well- I'm glad you said it and, and, too before I do my second reread of it now because I'm going to have that at the top of my mind as I yeah. go through a whole another time. I'm going to enjoy yeah. it. Totally. There you go. Now you'll you'll see what we were doing. I I do um uh I I have a a, a bit that kind of pops off of what Jim was just saying that uh, happened to Jody and I both at um San Diego Comic Con. So the first year that we came out with Year Five and we had the first issue. I think I think we'd only been out for the first like, couple of issues. Um and we got the whole writers team together and I'm standing next to Brandon uh and and we were just sitting there doing our our, our signing and uh, this woman with pink hair comes down the way and uh like on her walker and she turns and uh Brandon who is a, an encyclopedia for like, especially like old Star Trek, 
like he he was one of our like he, he had a lot of utility in the room um brandon is a deeply excellent writer with really excellent ideas and great follow-through but he also like knows he can like see somebody on site and be like oh that's that actor or that actress for like this like, one episode of like 96 television and she walks by and he goes are you bj trimble he actually saw her name her name on the walker yeah, oh, wow. because are you, are you Beecher Trimble? And uh, and for those of you who don't know, Beecher Trimble is the first Star Trek fan. Not maybe not the first Star Trek fan, but is like the first in Star Trek fans. Uh, she is the um, she's the she is I think technically and like canonically the first shipper. I think she wrote the like first like Kirk Spock uh, uh, fan fiction, or at the very oh. least like helped curate it. Like she was deep inside of the Star Trek fan community when it was kind first of developing out. Fandom in a way, I would she say. And she she and her cadre developed fandom and sort of built it into the thing that we know and. Um, we owe her enormous credit, uh, debt of gratitude. So I freaked out. Brandon freaked out. Jody freaked out. We all freaked out because we all knew who B. Joe was. And I was like, oh, my God, thank you for coming to the signing. Like, let's sign. But then also, like, can I just come out? Can we get a photo? Like, can we talk? And we did. And we, we took a photo for a little bit. And then she kind of took me to the side. And we were just talking for a little bit. I got to, like, walk around a little part of the con with B. Joe. And while it was happening, we were sort of going around. I think her, I think her husband had like gone to another booth and she was like, I don't know where that old guy went. I gotta find him. That was literally like how she talks. And we walked and we walked over and we're walking around and we're talking about Star Trek. And I'm like, you know, it's very, it's, it's wild for me to, as like a a relatively young person to you be, to be entering a thing that you helped author. Like it's a really, it's a real trip to be coming into this and, and, and trying to build out um, what the last year of your five of of Star Trek should be. I hope we kind of get it right for people like you who like knew this stuff when it was first starting. Like, I hope it's successful to you. And she said, I mean, I'm sure it will be. I love this stuff, but, and it'll stick with me forever. She's like, but what I really want is for it to be accessible to new people. And it's why I don't understand so much of the fandom um, rejecting the idea of new Star Trek sort of out of hand that by saying like, Oh, it's not my star Trek, right? Okay. Discovery doesn't have to be your star Trek. None of this has to be your star Trek, right? Because you, your star Trek can be TOS your next generation or six, nine or enterprise. If you want, like star, your, you, any star Trek can be your star Trek, right? No judgments. But um, if we don't create new star Trek, then what's, what's going to happen to our kids? What's going to happen to the to the next generation? Literally, the next generation who needs their Star Trek. It's not for us anymore. It's for them, and we're building the base. And to hear somebody who had been who like invented fandom, right? To hear somebody like that say that so just directly, like it's so weird that they won't get on board. They should just get on board. Why not? And she she didn't have problem. She didn't have a problem getting on board. She just came to our signing like any fan, and if she if we had spotted her name uh you know we would have just thought she was a nice old lady who was a fan of star trek uh yep. like so many others and yeah yep. i mean this is perfect i mean i couldn't have dreamt for a better segue into talking about the book characters now because now that you've said this and gave that 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 real life story now we can talk about the originalists which i've been why the concept because now okay everyone who star trek fans listen to this carefully there's deep meaning in this book um talk to us about the originalists um and i'm going to pass it over to fred to talk about kind of your adaptation and understanding of it to fred um in context of star trek adventures so so where did the idea come from and um what are i know that there's a 
Jody, you have some input on it too. You had spoken to me a little bit about it. So whoever wants to start. Oh, I, I, I think Jody should start. Jody wrote our, probably the issue that is the most sort of deeply embedded in, in the originalist uh, uh, Hold on, I'm pulling up content. I, I have Harry Mudd's political ad and that's probably the... <laughs> nice. I, that's, yeah, I can just read this. Uh, it's I felt so gross writing this, I'll just say. <laughs> <laughs> Remember you like wrote me a text being like, I don't think I can write this issue right now. This is, this is a hard thing to write in the middle of like, what, October of 2020? Like, just like right yeah. up against the election. It was bad. Yeah. I'm going to show his picture. I'll share screen and share it, show his picture while you, while you read the political ad. Cause I'll yeah, I can't, I can't do a good impression. So it's just going to sound like me, but these are not my, I do not like approve of this message. Um, <laughs> we owe a lot to the proud peoples who formed this federation. Those who laid the groundwork for all we hold dear. Those who came first. Remember when being first meant something, when a man earned his place in the stars, the ideals of the Federation are noble, true. But does the current state of the Federation really reflect the wishes of its founders? I'm Harcourt Fenton Mudd, and I promise to raise the Federation up to the glorious heights it was always meant to reach. Vote Mudd. Vote for a future that we'll build together. <laughs> yeah. Can, I, can't, I can't imagine where we had the idea for the originalists. Uh, but I mean, truthfully, like that whole that whole idea right of um of star trek being a place where humanity has evolved past its need for possessions and competition and you know a lot of the things that we like star trek supposes that and certainly gene roddenberry supposes that but then most star trek stories say but there are individual failings look at this mother who can't get over her grief who's going to kill a crystal entity right like I, I always go back to Silicon Avatar for whatever reason. Like it's it's a really good example of this. Where it's like, oh, we have this very, very evolved humanity that still has absolutely no idea how to process grief. Um, Star Trek does that a lot, actually. Uh, and I think so one of the things we wanted to do was say, okay, if there's enough people like that, then you could appeal to the worst parts of the Federation mindset. That being, hey, uh, five great planets, Andoria, uh, Earth, Proxima, Talar and uh, uh, Vulcan all came together and founded a collective, like for the better good. Like that's that's incredible. Once we start involving Bolia and uh, Trill and Bajor, are we really doing good by the people who this was actually started to protect? Obviously, that's a terrible argument and not an argument that I would make in the real world. But it's well, an argument that I can see. Ken Burns, the new Ken Burns uh, PBS thing about it, U.S. and the Holocaust. Because, because that stuff doesn't go away because it's part of human nature. It's part of the base level of humanity to get jealous and defensive um, about certain things that we shouldn't get jealous and defensive about. And uh, I, we just felt like you had to apply that to Star Trek. It, it felt like it would be dishonest not to, especially because by the next generation, it really seems to be a different conversation. By the next generation, the Federation has grown so large that this conversation couldn't be made. But in TOS, you can. It's still a pretty small Federation. And the fact that it wasn't just the humans fucking... Or, oh, um, <laughs> pick things up, you know, right. that this was, you know, uh, the story with Mud starts on Andoria. So Andoria is deeply tied into the originalist movement, and that's where their uh, non criminal uh, presidential candidate eventually comes from. <laughs> and that is, 
right? Yes. Created the, the Andorian character Jody. Yes, uh, she she her name uh, Renai is an anagram of my grandmother's name, the one who uh, knew Leonard Nimoy, and I thought it was kind of funny to make uh, her an Andorian because we know the history of Andorians and Vulcans. So. That's brilliant. I love it. Let me ask a question just so we get into Fred Love's head a little bit. Can you just talk a little bit? I mean, you, you read this comic, you read this graphic novel, and now you have to glean and transform it into playable um, characters, into digestible bits for a game master. Um, again, I'm just for those people who are playing or game mastering, I hope you were listening to this whole premise of nostalgia and originalist because it's going to change how I use this module. That's for sure. Fred, talk to us about how you reverse engineer it. Yeah. So we started out just by reading everything. And I just took notes as I went highlighting the coolest bits. What would be the coolest bits to have in in a game? And so I made categories for ships and technology. I made categories for characters. And then we also did factions and the originalists were presented as a faction in the IDW or in the, the year five. And so obviously, I wouldn't suggest that the player characters, if they're, they're Starfleet characters, be members of the originalists, but it could be a really fun foil. Let's say that uh, an originalist member of the Federation Council suddenly uh, cuts their, their the mission of their starship. One of the, the originalists are th- think that uh, exploring stars is a waste of resources and a way of provo- provoking the Fem's enemies. So what if, so what if they, uh, suddenly your player, player characters had an entire mission and pulled out from under them? That would be a, a suggestion that I would bring out there looking, looking to stuff stuff to the table okay got it good sorry you're having you're having a little you're in some sort of tachyon web flux thing <laughs> oh no so you're aware oh, no. Gary oh, Seven. No. <laughs> but we resolve things with the folians man it had to be <laughs> i loved what you said though because i think sometimes people um some people want to play a, a what we now are referring to as a, you know an unaligned game where some people actually want to play the hairy muds and that's great because Star Trek Adventures is making that possible for people. I, I think for a lot of players and Jim, you can talk to it more than I can, who love the original series. This actually could be a really interesting way to to um, address the issue if you have a bunch of players who are only in love with TOS and to creatively use this guy to stretch their wings, right, Jim? Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, there's, a, there's still, I mean, yeah, we haven't gotten there yet, but we're, we're trying to figure out where to fit it in. There's still a huge component of the, like the original series fans and RPG fans who really want to play a Horda play, player character, right? We haven't figured out where to fit in a Horda yet, but like in this, in this year five series, you had Tholians being such a key component of the story. I was like, oh, Fred, we totally got to throw in Tholian player characters. Like, I haven't heard a lot of people say, oh, I want to play a Tholian. But why not? Right? Why well, I mean, go for it. You know, Bright Eyes is such an amazing character. It's like, sure, why not have Bright Eyes on a Starfleet vessel uh, doing stuff? That's totally, totally within I was- the within the uh, Star Trek vein. I, I, I geeked out so hard um, yeah. at the idea of a playable Tholian space. So, okay, I, I, I need to back up here because I have, I have done something that Colin will just like ravage me for if I do not say it straight away. Savage me. Colin will not ravage me. He will savage me. <laughs> um, here's what's up. I, before I was ever writing any kind of Star Trek, before I, they ever, it was even a, a glinter, glint in the mind's eye that I might ever get to write Star Trek like well back um i uh 
it was right after I met my wife and she had like, she'd left town for a couple of months to go like pack up her stuff and finish out college. And I, I was basically here in LA in our like little apartment being like, not sure what I'm doing. And uh, I didn't have a lot to work on. And I'd watched a lot of Star Trek Deep Space Nine lately. And I got out of Deep Space Nine. And I was like, I have questions. And I'm going to run them out as, an, as a role-playing game. And I'm going to do a bunch of different ships. I'm going to do like a Federation ship. And I'm going to do a Klingon ship. And I'm going to do a, you know, a Dominion refugee ship. And I, I'm going to do all these parties. I'm going to bring it together. It'll be like a 10-episode thing. It'll be fun. There was no Star Trek adventures at the time. Star Trek uh, role-playing was, was kind of bereft at the moment. And so I had to create something. I modded White Wolf. I like like went in and rebuilt White Wolf and then designed a ship combat system and then ran this game. And this game started as a 10-person, 10-episode game, and it grew to a 35-person, 150-episode game. Uh, it it got really, got really, really extraordinary and really, really large and became a living universe. And we did like seven, eight years of like Star Trek history out of it. And the yeah, Tholians. Yeah. And the Tholians were to some degree our villain. Um, they were our long term thing. We were doing a thing with the Tholians, not what we did in year five, but like, um, you know, we we're doing stuff like it. Actually, I never finished the game. So my players still don't know what I was doing. Uh, but uh, turns out you get busy. Uh, but Star Trek. Um, uh, didn't, you know, I, I was trying, I, you know, I, I built the system. Tholians really couldn't be built in the system. It was just really hard. Like they're just different. They're biologically different. They have really different abilities and like ways of communicating. So I was like, ah, I don't know. Instead, I made them a medical mystery. And I had a character who was a doctor played by my friend, Adi Kabikting, who um, would come in and would do these like medical games where she would work on a uh, work on like a tholian and try to figure out how a tholian worked and she had like tholians in stasis and like her whole game was like collecting tholians and learning how they worked and when we started the game when we started the, the comic we took those medical reports and made them canon because they were an easy way for us to be like, well, how, how does all the science of Tholians work? I don't know, but I have this friend with a like very medical mind who's been working it out for years. So I just called Adi and I was like, can I use all that canon? And she was like, yeah, go for it. And so uh, we brought all that into the game, which is where the, the stasis beams come from. It's where the sub-zero phasers come from. It's a lot That stuff was all like stuff from our game. So our game actually, uh, an RPG came in and influenced year five, which then found its way into Star Trek adventures. And then there was a playable Folian character that was built on medical and build out stuff from our white wolf game. Like the actual RPG Ouroboros here is insane. I got to um, ask Fred, Fred, take awesome. it, please. What were you thinking? I'm just so gratified to hear that. I, I, I think if this conversation proves anything, it's that uh, you can tell, you know, Star Trek is not is not is more than one thing. And you, and you can tell great Trek stories on, on the screen, uh, in, in comics and a table. And, and I'm just so gratified, gratified to hear that element from such long, long term campaign found on Star Trek Adventures. I, I love that story. It's amazing. Yeah, That's man, really I, 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 I want I would want you to go on more, Fred. Again, I, you know, I think your your uh, connection isn't clear enough. But with with what Jackson just said, and maybe you can talk to it a little bit, Fred. When you reverse engineered it, and Jackson, you saw the stats. You have the actual Star Trek Adventures modules there. So I'm looking right now at the Tholian Elder on page 17, um, and I'll just go ahead and pop it up on screen so we can chat a little bit about it. Then, you know, the one question I have is, you know. Uh, Fred, you reverse engineered this character here. Jackson, are, did, how, how did the minds match up, do you think? Now, Jackson, thinking back to what you just told us, and then Fred, talk to us a little about what you noticed about the Tholians that, that stuck out to you, why you wanted to engineer them like this. 
Well, from Sorry, reading, yeah, go, go ahead. Uh, from from reading the comics, as I recall, they they spent a lot of time. Like, there's a point where that they're actually climbing the Tholi Tholi in a vacuum of, of space. I knew that that needed, needed to be something that to be accounted for. I also try to account for what we know of the Tholians from what we see on see on screen on NL series series and Enterprise, sort of mash them all together. Uh, and and then, then the chapter in the the Star Trek Adventures core rulebook that tells you how to create NPCs. And so I guess. The those three elements, the, the comics, the canon, and then the, the way you build characters in Star Trek Adventures, I had to kind of meld all those three elements together and, and come up with a stat block. And hopefully uh, it's it's close to what Jackson would have had in, had in mind, would have been for his, for his own long campaign. Yeah, I mean, it, it's wild to look at it because it is fundamentally distinct from both the way that my, my game built stuff. So it's really just looking at like, oh, well, where do we have connect connective tissue and like one of the things and this is just not a thing that we've ever was ever established in star trek canon but i i established in my game and then brought over into into year five uh was that the tholians would be immune to vacuum which was just me looking at like well if you if you have a crystalline structure uh for your body uh and you're not dealing with oxygen or heat in the same kinds of ways. And especially if you generate heat from within yourself, uh, which is what Tholians do. We know that at least from enterprise, uh, that this was a great way to just say, okay, well, that's something that they can do that no other species can do. Like they can, those Tholian webs, they can walk on them like spiders. That'll be fun. It's big and crazy for my game players. Now my, now my, my swarm, my, my ships can get swarmed by Tholian NPCs that they can fight along the, you know, through the hallways. It can be very like first contact. It felt like a very fun like way to do that kind of thing i even had ships that like developed anti-tholian web superstructure technology so that they could like fly through tholian webs all kinds of stuff designed around that um and so the immune to vacuum was really important there uh in in terms of building that out then we brought that into year five as an action beat because it was like oh well that then that makes for a really great comic book beat because one of our core principles on this book we had four core principles and one of them was be visual right always be visual because star trek isn't always visual but comics really have to be so that was where we always started this gave us a big cool visual which also makes for a big cool action moment which also makes for a really big cool set piece for your for your game table um and it's so again, that's that's just a greater little Ouroboros moment. Yeah, and having this to refer to the art just make, brings it alive. Jody, you you worked on the story with Ahura and Bright Eyes, correct? Yes. In, in, in that story there. And what was your favorite thing when you encountered that story? What were you trying to extract from that? You mentioned it a little bit, you know, but what was the social commentary then but there between that relationship? And where do you want Bright Eyes to go as a character? Say if it's a game master, you had the opportunity to give them some guidance. What, you, what would you tell them about the character that maybe we wouldn't know. I mean, I think like what Uhura was dealing with the, the story, just like setting up sort of a communication understanding is like, that's the sort of thing that I think is really juicy to give players at a table, because I feel like a lot of players, especially in Star Trek, like even things that are maybe enemies, you just want to make friends with it. You just want to be friends with everything or you kill everything. There's like kind of no middle ground in <laughs> RPG. So I like to think that like, if you give them a character who would normally be an enemy, an NPC, but they're clearly young, they're clearly have been abandoned and they need help. I feel like most RPG players would just sort of jump in and try to find the clues of the mystery of how to communicate with them. So in a mm -hmm. sense, like Uhura is very much like the prototypical, I just want to be friends with it, RPG player character. Yeah. And I think too, what's neat is, uh, you know, for, for budgetary limitations, there's only really humanoids in the, the original series and TNG generally. 
And it didn't really help us to expand our mind into when you do meet something that's way different, can you react to it in an empathetic manner? And I think you nailed that with the story um, with that. Do you want to talk toward that a little bit and how that's relevant to now? (laughs) Well, I think especially when there was the moment that Uhura and Bright Eyes could speak and it's in, it's there in the uh, RPG book, they, not it was sort of like a core to me, that was almost the core message of that interaction. Like this is a being and no matter how different they seem from all the humanoids that, you know, they are still a person. And that's sort of how you're going to find that ability to communicate and form understanding. So I think very much sort of like we, we were saying before, it's sort of like taking the alien and finding the commonality and the common ground and where you can reach a concordance really. Yeah. <laughs> Which is what we call it when the Tholian and uh, elders all agree on something. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a B. Joe Trimble reference, isn't it? I think her, one of her early works was the concordance, the Star Trek concordance. It absolutely TV. is. Yeah. And you're the first <laughs> person. No, late straight up, Jim. I, no one has ever called us on that ever before. What? That, oh that, it, was like, it was a super it was a super super deep cut that we put in there it's also a reference weirdly to another rpg thing i did called vast uh, that jody and i did uh, uh we had a we had a, a species that um had a a similar um thing where they could they could uh come together in uh concordance and uh, so jim, we, jim we, gets the, the crystal cube award i just made yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get the old time star trek fan award because i remember that far back <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. awesome um i i got we got to talk a little bit again about you know a couple other characters i know you know we're, we could talk about this all night but there's other amazing characters that were created in here like the akosa who wants <laughs> to talk to us about the akosa well, let me let me set the stage on the Icosa. Uh, the Icosa were created in collaboration with Jim McCann, uh, who was uh, one of our uh, writers on, on Trek. You talked about diversity in Star Trek, and I, I don't want to like put too much of, a, of an emphasis on this, but just so that it's really clear in terms of right out the gate what we were trying to do on Star Trek. Um, the Star Trek room was Colin and myself, uh, who obviously like white guys, two pretty straight white guys. Then we had... Jody, we had Brandon Easton, um, who's a black man, and we had Jim McCann, who's a gay man. The most diverse TOS room you'll ever see. Um, and and one that was in in we and we very I mean, IDW had it from the get-go, but we were very insistent on like, we need this room to reflect the readership. We need this room to reflect the world outside. We need this story to be able to talk about issues that are important to the black community, that are important to the LGBTQ community, that are important to the to, to women, that are important to everybody who isn't James T. Kirk. Like we needed that framework. And it was really important that the room look like the enterprise. And so that was a big part of what we tried to do um, as we were just starting it off. And the ICOSA are a development of that. The ICOSA on a on a on a very like high level are a cool underwater species for your Aquaman-flavored adventures. They are fun and cool and underwater. They can help you be fun and cool and underwater. Um, they ha- have a, uh, a sort of inherent conflict with uh, the other species on their planet who are actually just really them, but they've spent too much time above the water. So they've kind of calcified uh, and become more rigid. And the way that and it's an old school classic Star Trek story of you know, two species that just are effectively the same species, but can't agree to like get along and live in the way. But 
because it came from Jim and it was very specifically about stuff that Jim really cared about. It's a story about transgender issues. It's a story about how we deal with gender, how um, the icosa are gender fluid and are capable of expressing gender in various ways and sort of see gender fundamentally very differently than uh, humans do. And uh, that the other species on their planet, the coral, that they have effectively become rigid in their gender ideas and rigid in their identities in general. And the more rigid they become, the more uh, the warlike they become and the less rigid they become, the more uh, at peace with nature they are. And that's sort of how the icosa planet functions, which now that I'm saying it out loud is also just, again, the nostalgia theme of the book, like accelerated very high or accelerated very low. Um, so the icosa come into the story for a very personal reason through uh, Sulu uh, and, uh, uh, and I all, uh, which is a relationship and a romance uh, that challenges Sulu's concepts of gender um, and what that means, because as, as, as sort of famously uh, not straight as uh, George Takei is, uh, Sulu is traditionally a very, at least TOS Sulu is, is traditionally very straight coded. And we thought this was a great opportunity to like challenge that without breaking what's what George has sort of said is, is his headcanon of the character, which is that the character is straight. And so it's like, okay, if that's where his head is at, then let's challenge this straight character with somebody who he doesn't really know how to fit inside that world worldview. And Jim really brought that to the surface with the Icosa. To the surface. Ah. Well, let's go a little deeper on that with Fred. Fred, what was your... <laughs> I was just going to add to that the gender. That was also a thing that we played with with the Tholians because why would a crystalline entity who isn't gender. similar to us at all have a gender? So... You know, bright eyes is they them, and no one on the ship has a problem with that. So we, you know, we just sort of want to establish that, like, you know, this far into the future, you know, there isn't an issue with different pronouns. They, it's just okay. That's what it is. Cool. Okay, good. And then Fred, your favorite part of uh, your favorite part of again reverse engineering your favorite character that you worked on. Yeah. I know my uh, connection might be a little spotty, so I'll keep it brief and I apologize for that. But the Icosa were at the very top of my list of things from the book that I knew had to be in the the are, are the Star Ventures product, product. So there are Icosa NPCs and there's also Icosa player character rules as well. They were so imaginative and and interesting and, and, and thought-proving that uh, that was probably my favorite part of the entire project. I felt that when I went through the book too. <laughs> but, but, but again, these I think for a game master, people playing Star Trek Adventures, it's digging deep. There's the one point of just you know reverse engineering and making playable characters, but it's also pushing social commentary in an appropriate and safe way with your players. And this book is as deep as you want to get into it. <laughs> you know, and I think it's nice that Jim was talking. You were talking about you know your your seven year old is looking at it and. It's, looked at it and I like a book. I always say this is about Calvin and Hobbes to bring in them. Every year I read it, I get something different out of it. And I have a feeling that this is this year five also. Jim, what do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think when I when I reread it, when 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 we were working on the outline with Fred, uh, you know, I was like, I knew the I knew the Icosa had to be in there. I knew the Tholians had to be in there. Not just because they would be really cool player characters in, in somebody's game. But exactly because of those gender um, issues that we could drop into the game without hitting people over the head with it. Like, of course, TOS tended to hit people over the head with uh, social commentary because <laughs> that was you know, what you did in the 60s uh, to get people to, to get it. 
right? But uh, this was a way that you we could just kind of slide it in. It's like there it is, and just lay it out, and uh, and you know just see what people did with it. So I was just really I just loved the Icosa. When I opened up the comic book and they were first started, like what really grabbed me about them was the vibrant color that you were able to bring into yes. the comic book. It's like they 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 were just like blowing right off the page because they were so different from even like the Enterprise crew with their colorful uniforms and the bridge and the enterprise and stuff. It's like, here's the Icosa. They're underwater. They got, you got the coral, you got their, their bodies are so vibrant and different and, and fluid. And it's like, Oh man, this is so cool. I got to yeah. get that in the book. And uh, you know, if we couldn't have gotten access to the art, I, I don't know that we would have even done the project because it's like, we got to have the art along with their, all the great content. And uh, I am just so grateful that we were able to make that happen because that, that really, that tied the, the the whole product together together so well, Fred um, the, and, and Jackson and everybody. Yeah. The Icosa are also I'm really interesting on that level. I'm um, just from a design and art perspective because uh, they're one of the few uh, species that carry over between artists. Uh, generally, the Icosa are generally our, our our issues take place in one sort of artist oeuvre. Um, but with the Icosa, they were one of those great opportunities where we could like link with a little story bit. So they show up in the fourth episode of the show. Uh, where the Enterprise is stranded on a Tholian web and learns how to, uh, you know, uses what it learned in the Tholian web to try to escape, but has to mount a rescue mission. That's the sort of new escalation is they're stuck on it with another ship and they have to mount a rescue mission. And that's how they meet Iol in the, in the sort of spacefaring Icosa. And they, they end up using the water inside of the ship, which is their atmosphere to escape. Um, it gave us a really great opportunity to start thinking about these characters um, uh, as water dwellers, right? But we really only saw Iol. All of the others were gone. So where? So so we're only seeing Iol. So Iol is getting designed by Stephen Thompson, the artist on that issue. Then Sylvia Califano is coming in on the following issue and is coming in with um, or the following issues um, and is coming in to Jim's script. Technically, our script is the first one. Um, Jim outlined the first episode of that and then and then wrote the other half. But it's it's all Jim's story. Uh, we just came in because Jim was having a day. Um, but we we come in um, with Iol, and we've only seen Iol. So that's all we've got for the Icosa when they start. And, Syl and it's given to Sylvia. And it's like, hey, Sylvia, build a whole underwater world. And fortunately, Sylvia Califano is brilliant at exactly that kind of thing. When you talk about vibrancy and color and inviting and welcoming art, I mean, Sylvia's just got it in spades. She's a very, like, incredible talent in that regard. And so she was able to build this out into this really beautiful um, and an undersea kingdom that didn't feel immediately evocative of, you know, Aquaman or, or Namor or any of that, which, which I thought was really also very important. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the transformative thing for this, and, and I'm hoping we get more of it, is more collaborations between IDW and Modifius Jim. I mean, what what are the chances, you know, of that happening in the future? Do people have anything to look forward to with that? Uh, I mean, it's, it's always been on my mind and like I'm avidly reading everything that comes out and it's just like trying to figure out what could we do? And where does it fit into the schedule and what, what, you know, thematically, what does it link up to? And, um, you know, I've, I've had a draft email in my, in my inbox waiting to send at some point, but I just haven't had the time to like figure out like, Hey Jackson, Hey Jody, like what's next? What, what, what well, collaboration do we so do that's yeah. Do you mind if I, I just plug something really fast then uh, and, and start, let's, let's start that collab right now. Um, I, uh, so Colin and I uh, are back on Star Trek uh, starting in October with uh, the launch of Star Trek number one, brand new series, brand new uh, build out. Remember back when I told you about that, that failed 
line that we couldn't get off the ground because the card happened. Uh, well, we're doing it. Uh, we're, we're doing it as, as a single book right now. It's called Star Trek. Uh, no colon, no under title, just Star Trek. Um, we've been calling, we've been calling it flagship in internally just to keep it. No stinking A, no stinking B, no, no, no. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Uh, and the point of Star Trek is to tell stories that exist in effectively a two year period between the end of Voyager and the beginning of Nemesis. So it's during the like height of next generation period, all of the characters from Deep Space Nine, Voyager and TNG who made it through the series are alive and we're using all of them. We're treating it like the Avengers. So, um, the book is going to be a ship called the Theseus, USS Theseus. It's an it's, it's a Discovery class vessel, so it's effectively an experimental technology vessel that's lived in dry dock its whole life. Uh, if you want to know the origin of the USS Theseus, it's in Star Trek Year Five, Number Thirteen, when it's the flagship that replaces the Enterprise. It might even be in. Fully statted out in the tie-in. Yep. It's fully statted out in the tie-in. So there you go. So that same ship, a hundred and ten years later is has been completely re-kitted and refitted by it its engineer ship. yeah exactly well that, that's the whole point that's why we named it um so the theseus is uh coming out of uh dry dock and is going out on a mission with benjamin cisco in the captain's chair he's coming out of the wormhole with a mission from the prophets he's got a really unique and, and strange relationship with time, but an even stranger relationship with his son. And they are going to be um, uh, going out on this adventure uh, to try to figure out uh, what the prophets want of him now to help uh, save the galaxy. He's got data at first officer. He's got Tom Paris at the helm. He's got, as I said, a mystery in the, um, in the engine room. He has a mystery really? in the engine room and uh, he's got, uh, and we've got a couple of new characters. Oh. One who is a, one who's a legacy um, to Enterprise, uh, uh, Lily Sato, who is the seventh generation of the of the Sato communications line, um, and now she's and she's part Andorian because the family is intermarried with Andorians, uh, and a, a new character uh, named Talir, who's a non-binary Vulcan uh, with a whole uh, mysterious past that we're going to be getting into over time. Um, so the book is and Beverly. The, the, Yes. Oh, yes. And Beverly Crusher is our third officer, who I, I for some reason, didn't say, even though she's like straight up one of our most important characters. Uh, the Jimmy whole, Jimmy the whole idea, <laughs> the whole idea behind this book is to drive forward new Star Trek ideas that take place in the over of next generation. So in the same way that we were able to support your TOS time period with year five, I hope we can support your TNG time period with Star Trek. Let's talk offline. But like even just knowing how much you guys are doing with and have done to support Klingon games. Klingons are going to be very important to what we're doing. And I think there is almost certainly um, some great overlap between what you're doing and what we are. So let's, and, let's talk. And, and remind, refresh my mind. I didn't catch it. Is this a standalone or is it a, a mini series or. No, this is an ongoing series and okay. I've been, I've been very, I've been very coy about this, but okay. um, it's becoming less and less coy. Like it's not just a series. It's going to ideally be a whole line of books. Uh, oh, we're wow. just starting right so now and I can't, I and can't, I can't say, yeah, I can't say everything yet about what it is we're doing, but, yeah. but suffice to say, we fell in love with doing this on, on year five and uh, really are trying to, so we're trying to not just to do that. That's going to be just Colin and I, there's no room just because of the way that it works. Uh, a room wouldn't really function. It's very intertwined and very like specific, but we are really trying to find a space to bring the room concept back. Cause I thought it was just so valuable. And frankly, I just want to write more books with Jody. So uh, hopefully we'll, um, we'll have that up and running pretty soon too. Sweet. Well, we'll definitely be in touch. No doubt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That feels yeah. like it fits right in the wheelhouse of what we're, what we're looking at. So uh, you heard it. Here cool. first. 
folks. Well, I'm, 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 well, the bad thing about it, though, I, I, I want to say you heard it here first, but this will probably air in like a month or three. No, this will air in three weeks. Will it still be the first <laughs> place they heard it? Probably. It's great. The first, yeah, the first in, season doesn't come out until uh, October. So, and I honestly, I think right. October 26th is when the first issue comes out. So if you're listening to this anytime around October 26th, that's when you got it. Awesome. I can almost see it, Fred. It was a little blurry, yeah, but yeah, uh, oh, was that was that was that the book? Yeah, it's it's was, uh, start this one here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Start, yeah, uh, there's, yeah, there's a, so there's a there's a preview. Yeah, there's a preview. There's a there's a preview of uh, of what we're doing there, and also the uh, the death of Gary Seven. No big deal, or not Gary Seven. Uh, not 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 Gary. Gary, Seven, Gary Mitchell. Gary, Gary Mitchell. Mitchell. The other Gary. Yes, too many Garys. That that that's the that's the uh, that's the actual subtitle. <laughs> Star Trek is too many Garys. Star Trek, too many Garys. Number one. Yeah, for, the first, for the first time, I think I've been left speechless because I have too many questions. You, you you've seated me with all these questions. I mean, you, you we saw you fall out. You saw you pretty much fall out of your feet there. So well, Jim knows. Um, uh, which, Jim knows which character I want to ask about, but I'm not. Yeah. Oh yeah. Who do you want to Who do you want to ask about? I'm a veritable expert. Oh, is, is it seven? seven. This way, seven. seven. I have oh, so many okay. theories about what she did coming back. So I'm hoping this yeah. book answers it. Well, I'm willing to bet Picard got in the let's way of that a little bit. Well, that's I guess. Thank, uh, let's let's let's. We have Picard's not getting in the way of anything with us, which is awesome. Oh. We have full cooperation with the shows. We have full Fantastic. cooperation with Star Trek. Fortunately, we go way back with a lot of the people who are working on the shows. Uh, Colin and I um, are, are, uh, are friends with Henry Alonzo Myers on Strange New Worlds. Like we're, we're deep in this. So we're, we're trying to operate across the board and not be afraid of licensing issues like that on this book. Right. That's it's a, we'll see how far that gets us, but so far it's been nothing but supportive. That said, you're not going to see seven of nine for a while. I'll tell you that straight up. Okay. Uh, I, I, uh, and that is, and that is because our mandate here is to showcase characters who have not been showcased recently. And okay. so um, we, we started this, with the very, very much with the understanding of that we're trying to unearth characters who have not gotten their, their spotlight recently. And I'm so happy for Jerry Ryan that she has had that spotlight with seven. Yeah. We're, we're going to let Picard have that, that space. I have, you know, I think that is only, only right. That's so, that's so exciting because like Jackson, I'm, I'm like, I know, I know that era, right. I know that era earlier and there's so many characters in all the movies and all the series that, that were just not given their opportunity to do a lot. I mean, cer certainly some of the novels, I mean, actually, the, the the recent last twenty some years, all the different novelists that are doing Star Trek novels, they do a great yeah. job of pulling in all these all these characters that you just don't get to see much on screen, but they give them these full blown yeah. you know opportunities. And it's like, oh, it's so cool! Like just as a game master and as a player, it's like, oh, I'm sparking all kinds of ideas here. Stories, all you can pull in this character, you can pull in that character, and whatever happened to Riker, uh, you know, uh, Thomas Riker, is he dead or is he still out there? You know, did Rogue rescue? Whatever did happen to Thomas Riker? I wonder. I wonder. Yeah, there's so much that you can do with this. So I, I am so excited now. I can't and now that, and now yeah. that we can set out children, we can do the staff for Meryl, Balana, and Tom's daughter. She's <laughs> years old at that time, three or four at that time. So I'll just stat that out. Bring in the salamander kids. <laughs> oh my no. god. No, 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 no. All right. All right. No. You took it too far. Threshold. We've reached the threshold of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's do this because there's again there's so much to talk about. We're gonna we way over time, which is good. I really appreciate everyone who's been here. So I'm gonna go around 
one time to maybe hear one last take on working on this project, maybe an Easter egg or something. Let's start with Fred. Fred, uh, give us give us some final feedback on your thoughts. With yeah, that. I mean, l- literally, it, it was it was a dream come true, and I was so grateful to actually, uh, you know, get some of those scripts, some of the uh, the books in the series hadn't even been printed yet. And I literally just had scripts to work with for that. I think the last couple, and it was, it was literally take comic books, take ta- Star Trek comic books and turn into RPG content. It was a dream come true. It felt like something I was born to do. Uh, and just so grateful to have a chance to do it. And especially on such a great story uh, that felt so Star Trek and had such great art. I, I w- it was a real honor to be able to contribute. And, and check out Star Trek number 400 from IDW on stands now if you want to get a little preview of that uh, of the new Star Trek series. Hey, thanks for that. You bet. Plug you all day long. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Jody, what about you? Any other thoughts about it? Um, I, uh, in terms of Easter eggs, I know I mentioned I named the Andorian presidential candidate after my grandmother, but in my first story, there's two scientists who are named after my other grandparents, uh, because, you know, they are the ones who introduced my dad to Star Trek and he's a you know, big reason I'm a Star Trek fan. So, uh, my dad got to see characters named after his parents in Star Trek and space doing science stuff. So. Isn't that great? You take them into the future. Love, they live forever. They're so immortalized. You're so awesome for that. Jackson, any final two? Uh, I want to I, I leave you guys with um, the, the backbone of the book and the thing that I, I put, uh, we, as I said, we had four principles on Star Trek Year 5. Number four was be visual. Number three was optimism, not inertia, um, which was basically like ignore the Roddenberry box because he ignored it in TOS. Um, in For two, it was when in doubt, Kirk always put Chatner forward, always put Kirk forward because this is his show. But number one was character first. And I think this is something that I really want to just stress to anybody who's listening to this, who's a game master, especially, um, but also players, because I think this gets down to what always starts the coolest and best and most interesting stories. And I've had some of the greatest stories in my life in RPGs. Um, And there is a phrase that we used. I wrote it on the fucking board, right? This is like the North star for us on Star Trek year five and really on Star Trek in general. Um, which is uh, from Dorothy Fontana, the, uh, for my money, best writer um, of Star Trek TOS. It's, it's, it's her and Gene Kuhn were just the soul of that show. And Dorothy Fontana says, even though Harlan Ellison wrote my favorite episode, uh, Dorothy Fontana says, stories about objects don't work. Stories about relationships do. So whenever you find yourself really just kicking that MacGuffin down the line and trying to make sure that your characters just go to that next dungeon to get that next MacGuffin, try to find a way and try to look at it through the eyes of what would get you to go down into a dungeon. And that's the relationships you have with the people around you. That's the relationships you have with your parents, the relationships you have with your love. It's, it's, it's much more like character oriented stuff. So we've talked a lot about meaning and greater stuff and mechanics, but at the end of the day, what games are and what comics are, are stories about relationships. Uh, and uh, for, for Dorothy Montana to be the person who told us that felt appropriate on a Star Trek podcast. 
And just to add credence to that, the reason Jackson and I are friends are we met in an RPG. Our characters became friends and we became friends after that. And that game is still going. It's true. 10 years. Oh, I love stories. Now I'm going to be the one crying. And I said, I wanted to make you cry, Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) I got my shit together. (laughs) The the bow I'll put on it before as traditionally I hand it over to Jim to close up is it thrills me that that this is a phenomenal first time for Star Trek Adventures, you know, pairing with with uh, Star Trek Year Five. We now hope and have an inkling that it's not going to be the last time. But for someone like myself who collected comics my whole life, and I used to play Marvel superheroes RPG, trying to recreate that, Star Trek is so there now. We're there now, but even more so, um, as is written in the story, baked in, caked in, is it's really opening it up to everybody to play the game. Um, fairly. And, and I really want to say, you know, thank you, Jackson. Thank you, Jody, for doing not just pumping out a comic book with words, but actually following that Star Trek uh, tradition of making sure that there's a commentary that you can bake on, chew on and talk about after reading the comic. Now I have to go back and read it all over again. <laughs> thanks to you, which I will now with the new enthusiasm. Um, and thank make you. sure that others, others, uh, read it also. And then again, Fred, for you, I love that you adapted it because the minute I read again, the minute I read the the uh, transition for Star Trek Adventures, I was like, "Oh, he nailed it!" And it was just so beautiful the way it was uh, laid out. So this made me more excited. I hope everyone listening into this, if you didn't pick it up, either the comic book or the module, I, we don't sell pitch on this one, but it sounds to me like a, one of the strongest backstories that I've seen so far. Jim, you want to take it? Yeah, I mean, it's Star Trek through and through. Like I got. I got the graphic novels and the and the issues right there on the shelf, along with all the all the gold keys uh, from back in the day. All the other stuff that's come out. I mean, there's been so many comic books over fifty something years of, of Star Trek, and it's all great stuff. And um, to be able to have had the opportunity to do this project, uh, it was just it was a blessing. And, and you know, Fred, you were saying it was your dream job. This this project was like it, it just fell together so nicely because like we got the books. I read the books. I read the scripts that you sent. You know that I hadn't finished the story. And I was a little conflicted because like, oh, I don't want to read the scripts. I want to read the finished product. I want to be surprised, mm-hmm. right? But you know, by the nature of the work, had to had to spoil myself <laughs> and read them. Um, but uh, you know, the outline came together really easily, as I remember it. It was like, oh, we knew exactly what we wanted to put in the book, and then and then Fred ran off with it, and we had great support from Jackson and Jody and your whole team, uh, super supportive. I, I just can't thank you enough for all that all that you did, especially the artwork. I mean, just the reality uh, artwork ain't cheap. And uh, to have been able to get as much as you were willing to give us, it was like, oh my gosh, this is this is such a blessing that you were able to do that, and it made the product so so perfect uh, with everything all together. And uh, you know, we did the trade off with the advertisements and stuff, which was great. Um, so, and you know, it, it expanded the line in a new way. It gave us a reach into a into a part of the fan base that we hadn't really touched before, like the comic book hardcore comic book fans of Star Trek. And we haven't really touched yet. And it was like, oh, this is so cool. Now we need to, you know, build on that. And it's just, you know, trying to figure out what does that look like? <laughs> and yeah, obviously we That's have some here, which is great. Um, but uh, yeah, if I, if I had to tell the fans anything, like, like don't sleep on this series because it's Star Trek to the core, like hardcore. It is all Star Trek all day long, especially you original series fans. Like there is so much great stuff in here is you got the Tholians, you got the, the, uh, the Iotians, you got new species. You got Kirk, Spock, everybody. Like, if you need that bridge from the end of the of the three seasons to how where they end up in motion picture, like this is it. Like, you got, you got McCoy with the beard, and you got Spock going off to 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 do his Colinar thing. 
And it's like, it, it just bridges so nicely from, from that, that, because we may not get that now. I mean, we, we, may I was so happy to see that beard. Oh, yeah. that was so great. The, the disco beard with the, the medallion just and everything. The, oh, just, so the so just the best. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I, I just can't thank you both enough and, and your entire team. Thank you. Please extend your, extend the thanks to your teams too. The artists, uh, absolutely. Writers, everybody, because, um, like, like this was one of the one of the handful of products that I've worked on over the last six years for the game line that kind of felt charmed. Like it all just fell together. Yeah. It was like, oh, Absolutely. this is easy. This is easy to put together. It was like it made it easy for me. So thanks to Fred, thanks to Jackson, Jody. I mean, it was just so so well done. And uh, you know, I, I know we've been going, we've gone way over here. I did have one question for both of you, if you're willing to answer it. It's not really Easter eggs, but just kind of. Uh, um, I know as a, as a writer and an editor and a developer for all these, all these game lines, like stuff has to end up on the floor. Sometimes you just, by nature of the beast, you can't fit every idea that you have that you want to pack into it. So uh, just thinking about year five as a total, as a total package, like what's the one thing that you wish you had been able to add into it that you just couldn't find a place to fit it. wild because honest to god man year year five we didn't really have a lot that we left on the table we really did everything we wanted to do if i i go back to that outline and i'm like do we leave anything on the table and like genuinely i don't think we did i mean from a from a from a large perspective we didn't in fact we weren't even supposed to have an epilogue issue issue 25 <laughs> was a mistake made by someone at idw who was like i got an extra issue approved do you want to do it like we threw that thing together in a very weird way because we everybody got to write a little bit of it. Like we we got a, we got a surprise Valentine's Day special from Paul Cornell. Like we just didn't really have in that say in that in that way that you talk about. But that said, what do I wish we'd been able to get in that we didn't? Jody, do you do you even remember any of your other pitches? Like I'm trying to. I I mean I don't I didn't have any. I, the two pitch the two stories I did. Were they were the, the two you did. Yeah, I, yeah. I remember I, being on a call with Jackson and Colin, and they're like, "Oh, you know, we need to get the story going." And I was like, "Harry Mudd runs for president," and they laughed. And I'm like, "No, I'm serious." Uh, yeah, uh, um, I mean, the, no, the, I'm. The thing, uh, I do have one thing. Well, sort of. I mean, because I, you know, just again, because of the Leonard Nimoy family connection, I really wanted to the chance to write more Spock. But then I finally got to do it in the final issue. I got to do those pages of him resigning from Starfleet and heading back to Vulcan and just the memories he was carrying with him and, you know, just the slightest emotional reaction to them before he had that all stripped away. So, I mean, what I would have regretted not being able to write. I did get to write in the end because we got that extra bonus issue. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, that's I, a gold star then. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah I'm, I really, I really, it's, it's, it's wild. Cause normally I have something where it's like, Oh, we have this cool bit, but we cut it. But honestly, I don't think we did. I think I, this, it, Star Trek year five also felt charmed. That's like, okay. truthfully. That, that makes me feel so complete and puts closure as I'm yeah. turning each page, the cherry on top. So I love yeah. it. It just, it's just, you know, I will say there's, there's a thing that got rejected, but we turned it into the Icosa. So I don't really think of it as a loss, got it. but the original version of the Icosa story before we when when Colin and I were first pitching it, like before we ever brought it to the table, because how that happened was we said we want to do an issue where the Enterprise encounters a, 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 a world at war. And by intervening, by trying to do the right thing, 
ends up causing worse stuff to happen. We want to do a story about military adventurism and how sometimes even when you want to help, that doesn't mean that you should. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that it's very, very hard to draw that line. And the way that we want to do this, that story is a story that I've pitched a bunch of times um, with a different captain than Kirk, which is I've always pitched it as a Captain Archer story. But I was like, screw it. If this is the one time we're going to get to do it in Star Trek, I'll do it as a Captain Kirk story. But the idea when it was Captain Archer or when it was Captain Kirk is its first contact with the Cardassians. And it's the first time that we ever meet the Cardassian Union because first contact with Cardassians is not properly essayed anywhere. We never, we never see it. So I was like, all right, this is the first time we ever see the, the Cardassians. And when they show up, the Cardassians are um, a like wonderful, artistic, religious plurocracy. They're this like wildly peaceful. They're not at all the Cardassians that we know from Deep Space Nine. They're a, like they they could not be more different as a culture, which is something that Deep Space Nine talks about. Like oh, like back in the day we were this like artistic, religious, pluralist cu- culture, and we wanted to say like yeah, back in the day was like a hundred years ago, and the Cardassians. So, and because the enterprise gets involved, they end up screwing up. They don't understand how internal Cardassian politics work. And they accidentally kind of kick the snowball down the hill to start the rise of fascism. And that like within a week, by the time the enterprise leads Cardassia, it's the Cardassian union and all of the old art is being burned and all the books are being burned and everything's being destroyed because the Cardassians don't want to remember this period of their history. And the last bit when it was an Archer story, especially the last bit was going to be, they're like flying away and they're, and, and uh, Spock sort of mentions, Oh, I'm getting, I am getting life signs from a world that is known to have ancient spacefaring. If you want to go somewhere and, and, you know, just like touch base with somebody who isn't as volatile, like, um, you know, the planet of Bajor is right there and have, have Archer be like, I think we've, I think we've done enough damage. Um, but no, but the audience knows yeah, the damage they've done is to Bajor and it won't have ha- it won't happen for a while. But when it does, it's going to be, you know, caustic. And I, I, we've pitched this like first contact with the Cardassian story so many times that I know it's never going to happen. Um, but also, I know that like we turned it into the Icosa. We gave that to Jim and Jim said, well, I want to talk about gender. And it was like, great, <laughs> great, because the Cardassians are fucking not here. So let's let's make it something completely different. And that's where um, hey, hey, Jackson, uh, that's where those you, know, you could always pitch that story for a Star Trek Adventures module. You could. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let's talk <laughs> all right with that said again that's why we call this continuing conversations because there's we never run out of stuff to talk about so hopefully uh, jackson fred that at some point we'll be able to have you back on to discuss new projects um i really appreciate the insight you give into the story i know as a you know comic book reader and a reader of anything that once you talk to the writer you get to a whole new depth um, whenever you speak to the writing group. So I really appreciate you taking the time Thank to you. Do, uh, do this with us. I'm going to shout out for a second time in a week. Usually I mix up the brick and mortars, but because I picked up my Star Trek 400, com- uh, 400 comic from uh, Joe Field, Flying Colors Comics in Concord, California, that's who I'm shouting out today because again, they're brick and mortar. And where, will we, where would we be without that tactile experience of walking into a store? All right, mm-hmm. so let's do a quick go round. Um, of thank yous. Uh, we'll go Fred, Jackson, Jody, Jim, and we'll end the show. Fred? Yeah, uh, I got my uh, Star Trek 400 and issue number one of Lower Decks at Mayhem Comics and Games uh, right here in Ames, Iowa. Uh, thanks for having me on tonight, uh, Michael. It's always a pleasure talking to you. It's great meeting Jackson and Jody. Uh, and Jim, I'm sure I'll be in touch with you soon. Thanks, everybody. All right, Jackson, your shout out. Uh, I have... Uh... 
several stores that I love here in Los Angeles, California, as we, we have a, a, a wealth of riches here, but um, shout out to Collectors Paradise who did uh, a lot of really huge support on Star Trek Year 5. Uh, they have a bunch of locations all around Southern California. I love them very much uh, and uh, definitely uh, owe them a lot for, for moving this book. So uh, Collectors Paradise out here in LA, big shout out. Sweet, Jody. Uh, and Collector's Paradise is where I got my Lower Decks number one most recently. But since Jackson already shouted them out, I will shout out House of Secrets in Burbank, which was one of the first comic shops to support the work I was doing. I used to like crash on their sofa and write after I picked up my comics on Wednesday sometimes. So not only can you find my comics there, some of them were written in there. So <laughs> Yay! Oh, that's awesome. All right, Jim, take us out. Uh, so I, uh, I, I don't actually have a local comic book store that, that I know. So I, I need to find one. Uh, clearly, uh, this, you would think in the DC metro area, there'd be some, some good ones. I guess. Oh I yeah. I, you've, no, yeah. you've got some, you've, you've got some great ones. You've got, um, I lived in the DC metro area, man. Uh, I'll, I can turn you on. Uh, I think it's what? big comet. Big comet was amazing back when I was there. I think is what they were called. They were is okay. there, is anyway. third eye in the DC area too? I think. I Which think one? it is nearby. Yeah. Third okay. eye. Clearly, I need to do some some digging here. Yeah, so great stuff. But what, what I want to do is I'll, I'll just blanket thank all the comic book stores out there for being a, a key piece of the industry and uh, keeping the keeping the love alive and uh, you know hand selling comics when you can. Uh, I know hand selling is a lost art, but uh, I, I haven't forgotten it because I was doing it back in the day. Uh, hand selling, you get it in people's hands, you get them into it. So get, grab those Star Trek um, issues off the shelves, put them in your friends' hands, put them in your strangers' hands. Just tell them to read them because they're great and uh we love them and we want more always want more more story we always need more story. we got we're we're coming for you yeah <laughs> good job yeah. all right all right so next time idic live long and prosper be safe be well thank you all so much for being on the show can't thank you enough we'll, we'll definitely be in touch 